You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text comes from Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink in the matter of a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspirited mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. This is God's word. When I begin to uh, study this passage, um, it did for me what I, I hope it does for us today. Uh, I realized that I was being taken to school. Uh, now, there's a couple of ways that this statement uh, could be interpreted. The first is the sense of in like a, a one-on-one situation in sports where a player or a team enters into direct competition and one just absolutely smokes the other one. I mean, like no contest. For instance, this is the feeling I get when I play Brandon in basketball. If you've ever seen a one-on-one situation with me versus him, it is no contest. He is good. I am not. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, But specifically, uh, the other sense of this phrase, which I think is more applicable to our passage today, is that it's kind of the literal feeling that I got when I was back in school. Specifically, uh, the other like this reminded me of my least favorite question on quizzes or tests in school, which is true, false questions. I despised true, false questions. Um, specifically it's because I had such a hard time with those things. Uh, it always felt like I, if I overthought like one tiny word or phrase, uh, or I just had no idea which part of the question, like was the part that made it either true or false. I just overthought it and got it wrong. It was very frustrating. So I'm really glad that I'm done with school, at the very least for now, until Marcus grows up to where he's in school and then I have to help him and then it's gonna be, it's gonna be hard again. But I thought this analogy was a great fit for how this passage is structured when Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because earlier in this chapter and what we saw last week, Paul is concerned for the Colossian church concerning plausible arguments or philosophies that are actually empty and deceitful and which were threatening to captivate the church. So it's in this particular passage where Paul like talks a little bit more specifically about the details around what was threatening to sway the faith of the Colossians away from Christ. And Paul does take the issue seriously, but he also spends a surprisingly little amount of time on the details. I and mean, you've talked about this term Colossian heresy, you've heard it thrown around in sermons, but how it could be defined or what its source was is actually a little hard to define just because Paul doesn't talk about it that much. Is it Jewish in nature? Is it pagan? Is it Gnostic? Is it coming from 
outside the church? Is it coming for, from inside the church? Like Paul doesn't spend time on those details, which I think is actually really instructive for us. Paul spends so much time instead meditating on and discussing what is true regarding Christ and the church that not much detail is actually needed discussing or spending time on what is false. It's the best kind of true-false question. Because Paul knows so well what is true about Christ and what's true about the Colossian church in him, he is able to easily discern and clarify when something is actually false and what they're tempted to believe. When you meditate a lot on true things, it's a lot easier to see false things, is the point. So that's our outline for today. I'm going to ask two questions about this particular text. What is false and then what is true? And then to close, I'm going to give one main takeaway, which is the main idea of our sermon, which is to hold fast to the head. That's my title. That's where we're going to end and we're going to lead up to that. So there's two things I want us to ask because it's what Paul asked kind of us. What is false specifically about this deceptive teaching that is threatening to invade the Colossian church? Well, what is false about this deception is actually two things. And first is a false hope. So I'm going to read for us verses, I'm going to repeat verses 16 and then 18 and then 20 through 22. So I'm just going to read those for us real quick. It says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And then in verse 10, verse 18, it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. And then down again in verse 20, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is being destroyed by being used up. These are commands and doctrines of men. So in there, in this deceptive teaching, one thing is absolutely clear. It has a set of rules to follow. It talks about doing, talks about food to drink, what not to eat, what to eat. It talks about observing festivals, it talks about observing Sabbaths and new moons. <laughs> So as any good set of rules does, it has a list of do's and don'ts. And then if you'll notice in verse 18 and 20, Paul says two phrases. It says, let no one judge you and then let no one disqualify you. Or as I think we read earlier, no, let no one condemn you. So like any set of rules, you're judged by them. And if you don't follow them, you are disqualified by them. You are condemned by them. And I think it's really interesting that these regulations have a combination of two parts, that they are a combination of what should be done or not done according to a kind of a mix of commands and regulations. But there's also a set of experiences to be had too. So for instance, uh, the regulations sound really plausible because they sound a lot like Old Testament regulations, which have been part of it, which have been in effect for centuries as part of what was considered proper worship towards the God of the Bible. So consuming or not consuming certain things has ground in the Old Testament law. And then participating in Sabbaths and festivals at certain times also was required in the Old Testament law. 
But then here in this particular deceptive teaching, there's also experiences to be pursued, which was worshiping angels, which was forms of fasting or self-denial. And then there's also participating in ritual worship, which may lead to mystical visions of the spiritual realm, which then you would share with others. Laws and regulations can be set up for both kinds of things, is the point. And there's temptation in that if you're not doing these things, that your life is lacking and incomplete, and that you're not following God the way that you're supposed to, and that you're not acceptable to him because of that. Paul is clear here about the fact that regulation-based acceptance to faith is false. It's false because it's completely based on human self-effort. And there is no hope for a complete, full spiritual life as we are meant to live through law-keeping. We can't do it. No matter what those laws are, no matter if it's a list of do's and don'ts, no matter if it's experiences to be pursued or not pursued, laws and regulations cannot deal with our sinful nature. They highlight it instead of, in, instead of counteracting it. And that's the point of verse 23, which I'll read again for us. It says, although, although these have a reputation of wisdom, by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Laws and regulations and attempting to follow them as the basis for acceptance before God can never deal with our sin. It always highlights it. It never counteracts it. And it sounds plausible and is always persuasive, but in reality, it's always a false hope. It's always a false hope. There's no hope for us in our ability to keep commands or laws or pursue a set of experiences in order to be accepted by God. And there's a reason why these false hopes and regulations for rules-based spiritual life sound plausible, and there's a reason why they have persuasive power, and that's because they stem from a false head or a false source, which is human pride. So let's look again at verse 18 and verse 23. Verse 18 says this, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices in the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. So there's three terms across these two verses that I wanna point out. Verse 18 mentions that proponents of this teaching are inflated. Other translations might say puffed up in their mind. Now, I'm not a scholar, but I've never heard of or used the term puffed up or inflated by anyone who wasn't prideful. Like, that's just, that's just what that means. It means that someone has inflated their own sense of importance and worth based on their ability to follow rules. That's what that means. Verses 18 and 23 also use a general Greek term for humility, but the translation we read earlier gets it right where it talks in verse 23 about it's false humility. Like Paul uses just the term for humility, but it's clear he means it ironically. He doesn't actually mean it for what it is because it's the appearance of humility based on self-denial. And it's a clear reminder of Jesus' own teaching for us in Matthew 6, 1 and 16. 
So in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. That's a little general, but let's see specifically in verse 16. Whenever you fast, self-denial, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So, humility based on how Paul is using it ironically here is not true humility. It's humility based on the fact that you want people to see that you're denying yourself of certain things and they're seeing you and you're like, oh wow, you're really following, you're really following God now. You're trying to earn that praise with what you're denying yourself. And that's not really humility at all. It's pride is another form. It's all it is. And then verse 23 states a phrase and it says self-made religion. Other translations may say voluntary worship or self-imposed worship. And so that underlying word is a little uncommon and difficult to translate, which is why you see it appear kind of in different forms. But it's clear, as you see it translated consistently across different translations, that it's simply to imply a type of worship that originates with the self. It's self-chosen, it's self-imposed, it starts with you. So by looking at these three terms, it's clear that Paul recognizes the deceptive teaching threatening the Colossians as one that plays on and is based in human pride. It's not simply the requirement to follow certain rules, but it's that doing so creates a sense of self-importance and self-righteousness. And it allows you to think highly of yourself so you can follow what, so when you follow what it calls you to do, it gives you the sense of self-importance of your own ability to do so. It's pride. It presents the self as the foundation of the ability to worship and to live a complete spiritual life. Simply put, it's, it, it puts you at the head of your faith. It puts you at the head of your religion. And that's a false head. And I think that these categories, false hope and a false head, are applicable across every type of faith, across every type of way of living a life, spiritual or otherwise, pursuing a God or otherwise, but doing so completely through self-effort. doesn't matter what the faith is. It doesn't matter if it's this particular Colossian heresy or another type of faith. I want to warn us, myself included, that Paul again says previously in this chapter that this is persuasive to us. It can seem like the correct and right thing to do because the God of the Bible gives us commands to keep as a way of showing our loyalty to him. And don't get me wrong, keeping the commands of God is a right and good thing to do. Don't hear me, don't hear anything else. But What's so deceptive about what the Colossians were facing and what the church, our church, any church still faces today is that it proposed to keep rules and pursue spiritual experiences as the means of being acceptable to God. I remember facing temptation like this for the first time in college after I was a new believer. I would attend worship events with certain college ministries, and I just saw a lot of things I'd never really seen before. Like, I remember seeing students, like, during worship, hands up, eyes closed, 
like praying out loud, laughing, weeping, talking about visions that God was giving them. And I just never seen anything like that before. And I'm not here to say like that's false. Like for a lot of people, that's genuine worship. And if that's how you worship, like that's completely fine. But I'm saying that for me as a young believer, I saw what was happening and how other people were worshiping and I began to doubt my own faith because I wasn't worshiping and acting in that particular way. Like I'd never experienced that before. And so I started to do what Paul's imperatives once again warn against. Do not let anyone judge you. Do not let anyone disqualify or condemn you. So anyone there, I was trying to do that to myself. I was beginning to disqualify myself from the faith just because I wasn't having the same set of experiences. And it was a danger to me to see those as requirements, things that I had to do to be acceptable to God. Now, I'm not saying don't be tempted in this way because Paul doesn't even go there. Like he knows like as long as, we're, as long as we're here, as long as we're dealing with sin, as long as we're dealing with pride, that will always be a temptation. But I'm saying we need clear and constant reminders that our ability to follow God's commands or experience God in certain ways is not the basis for our acceptance before him. We need continual reminders that this is always a false hope with a false head. It always is. So how do we continually discern what is false? Well, we follow Paul and instead we meditate and we look on what is true which is Jesus Christ. So we've looked at a false hope with a false head. So now we get to look at Christ, who is our true hope and our true head. So verse 17, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. And Paul is, of course, referring to the regulations immediately before in verse 16, but can be comprehensive across the entire passage, but what a metaphor. The reality of Christ has come and the method of being acceptable to God by keeping regulations is simply no more than what it always was, which is chasing shadows. Micah showed me a video of Marcus from earlier this week because I was at work and so they went and played outside and stuff and the weather was nice. Um, And so they were playing outside in the cul-de-sac and it was the first time he'd ever noticed his shadow. And so she like pulled out her camera, started videoing. Oh, and it's, he attempted to catch it. Like he's just walking around, like chasing it, trying to hold on to it. And it's adorable. Like he's running around after it, but he doesn't know that he can never catch it. Like he just doesn't know, like, because it's not something real, which can be reached or held on to. And he can't blame him for that. He's one, like he doesn't know the difference, but how we are tempted to do the same thing. Trying to earn our way to God by chasing shadows after he's given us the reality of Christ and his work. Listen to what Hebrews 10.1 says. It says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. So the law was only ever a shadow of the good things to come. 
But in Christ, the reality is here. The law creates an unpayable debt before God when we go back and attempt to follow it in order to be acceptable to him. It's an unpayable debt. We can't cover it. But in 2.14, in Colossians 2.14, Aaron read it earlier, but I'll read it again. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And then in doing so, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And that's circling back to Colossians 1.13. So our hope is no longer in any ability to keep any type of regulation in order to earn God's favor whether that's a list of commands or whether that's experiences to be followed. There is no hope in that. Our hope is no longer in our ability to do that. Our hope is that God's favor has been lavished on us in Christ. He took the requirements of law keeping and the debt they created for us and nailed them to the cross with him. They're gone. They're done for. It's over. It's over. Then, when he rose, he proved that the debt was paid and the transfer was complete. But still, though, how do we continue to hope in this when we still see the present temptation and effective sin to tempt us back into that old way of living? How do we deal with that? Well, it's because Christ's death has not just accomplished something outside of us, but has done something in us, too. Look at verse 20. If you died with Christ, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? God loves to turn a death on his head. Death is an enemy. Death is terrible. It's sorrowful. It's saddening. And it's a reality of sin's presence still in this world. But Christ's death leads to life instead. Because Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.22 says, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. And then in 2.13, When you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive in him and forgave us all our trespasses. So, Christ's death causes reconciliation, and then Christ's life given to us gives us new life. And it gives triumph over our previous rulers and authorities, of which we've seen is sin, of which we've seen is our flesh, of which we've seen is Satan, is which that the pride in us, that impetus in us to earn our salvation that pride in us, that's been triumphed over. That's been killed. That's dead. Christ's death ended the reign of sin over our lives. And the reign of law, which then revealed that sin and then imprisoned in us, imprisoned us in it, excuse me. His death in his physical body kills what formerly ruled over us. So it does something in us. It's not just a, a present reality out there, something God has declared, 
but it's a work that he does in us. Like, that's why Paul says, if you've died with Christ to those things, like they're dead to you. Y'all have heard that phrase, like you're dead to me. It's like the ending of a relationship is like something that someone does and you're just like, well, you're dead to me now. Like, I don't accept what you've just done. That's what Christ did for the sin in us, for the rule of our sin, the rule of sin and the rule of Satan and the rule of our, of all of our enemies, he killed them. Which means now we no longer live in a way that's governed by those things or that we submit to once again as if we haven't been rescued. But instead, we live in a new way because we have a new head and the true head we were always meant to have, which is Christ. Christ is our true head. I'm gonna wrap up, or I'll begin our wrap up here by looking back once again to Colossians 1.18. You remember that hymn? He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And we see that reference here in 2.19 in a negative sense, but it still, it still carries that weight for us. It says, of those who are tempted who are tempting the Colossians to be swayed. It says they don't hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. I actually enjoy the translation a little bit more that says they don't hold fast to the head. Like the idea is that you've, you seize something, like you hold fast to it, you cling to it. Like that's the idea. They don't hold on to the head. So the pursuit of the false hope of regulations and the false head of pride threatens to cut the church off from its life, which is Christ. So instead of holding on to Christ, the Colossians are being tempted to lose their grip on their loosen, excuse me, their grip on their new realities in order to chase the shadows of the old. That was the temptation. But the life of the church the nourishment of the church, the strength of the church, and the growth of the church is only found in Christ. And like, you don't have to think about in a, in a big macro sense, like it's a micro sense too. Like your life, like your life as a Christian, your nourishment as a Christian, your strength as a Christian, your growth as a Christian cannot be accomplished apart from Christ as your head. If you don't cling to him, if you don't hold fast to him, you're sacrificing that. You're sacrificing that for a shadow of things which are past and gone and not real. When the new thing, the real thing is here for you to hold on to, to cling to. People are created simply to have Christ as their head. We were created for what we get to do here today. Like for what we get to do here on Sundays, worshiping together, singing loudly together, praying together, hanging out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Like we were created, we are created for life together in Christ. And I love the phrase grows with growth from God. I'm gonna nerd out a little bit right now, so y'all bear with me. But the reason why I love this phrase so much is that because thousands of years ago, 
even before Christ came, a couple hundred years before Christ came, Greek-speaking Jews began translating the Old Testament into Greek from Hebrew because that was the primary language that they were accustomed to using. That was the common language at the time. So they started with the first five books of the Old Testament. Makes sense. And they started with the first book, which is Genesis. Also makes sense. So when those translators looked at Genesis 1.28, when man and woman, the source of all humanity, were created by God and then received God's blessing and purpose on their life, this is what God said. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So when those translators saw that term, be fruitful, that particular command, blessing, purpose that was given to all of humanity, they saw that word, and then in Greek, they translate it into the exact same word we find twice in this verse for growth. The point of that is that we were created since the beginning of all things to grow with growth from God. Like that is the purpose of every single person here and the purpose of every single person who has ever lived and ever will live. Like who we are as people was designed to be found in God and to grow in him. To live a life which displays his character in the world. Now, Paul doesn't get into the specifics of that really here. That's actually what the rest of Colossians is about. So I'm excited to kind of go through that with us over or with y'all over the next few weeks. Not me specifically, but Chad, you get the point. We'll get to walk through that as a church together. That there are specific ways to live a life which displays his character in the world. But the point, the overarching point is that we were never meant to do anything else other than this. And that those who have been given the privilege of belonging to Christ, our lives are meant to hold on to him so that we can do what we were created to do. Like we were created to grow with growth from God. We can only do that in Christ we were designed for lives which reveal the reality of Christ in all of his glory, which is the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, as we also saw earlier in Colossians. But again, the final implication once again is this, is to hold fast and to cling to our head, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it's so dangerous because we are tempted to let go of that head. We are tempted to follow false hopes with false heads. And they can take a lot of different forms. But again, that's the point of meditating, as Paul does, on the truths and realities that are display for us clearly in Scripture of who God is and who Christ is. Meditate long, spend a long time, spend a lot of time with these realities. And you will start to see clearly the false things so that they, we, contend, we can continue to hold on to what is true, to hold fast to what is true, which is Christ, who is our true hope and our true head. There is no other hope. There is no other head. And... I see, I don't think I see a face in here that I haven't seen before. 
and that's a good, I mean, and that's good. I love all y'all, but I don't make any assumptions. Like where you're tempted to turn away from this, or maybe you've never, never really held, never really clung to Christ like this. The invitation is always there to do so, to prioritize it, to make, to make these decisions and to decide and to see that this is what you were made for. Every day is an opportunity to cling to Christ. No matter if you've done it before, if, you, if you've done it every day previous to this one, cling to Christ. Never let go. To do so is a threat and it's a, it's a turning away of what we were created for. So hold fast to Christ. Hold on to your head. In him is true hope because he is our true head. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you that today and every day is a chance to experience your mercy, your grace, your kindness. To see that you have given us so much and that you have made so much available to us, riches without measure, treasures without count. The reality that who we are meant to be is always found in you. Lord, we repent of those times where we are tempted and where we fall to place our hope in ourselves instead, to trust ourselves rather than you, to try and earn your favor by what we are able to accomplish. We ask for your help, Lord, to give us the desire, but then give us the ability to see you for who you truly are each and every day. And then, Lord, in, in light of the reality of who you are, help us to see the shadows for what they are, that we would be able to easily see what is true and turn away from what is false. And then, Lord, help us to help other people see these things too, that we are not meant just to see them for ourselves, but we turn to others and we ask them and we plead with them to hold on to their head that they were always meant to have. Help us, Lord, to encourage us, encourage each other onward tirelessly and then to be on mission tirelessly, seeking, seeking everyone who we know is meant to belong to you and giving them and offering to them the treasure that they were always meant to have. We thank you, Lord, uh, again, just for the sweetness of your word. Help us to be changed by it. And Lord, we thank you for these things as we come to the table, as we celebrate your work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.